All right. And as you're doing so, let me invite the rest of you to take your Bibles out and turn to Acts chapter 22 with me. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, you'll find a, a black Bible underneath the chair that you're sitting on or the chair in front of you. And you can turn to page 948 in our text. Right. All right, you're all set? Good, good. I have an interesting challenge this morning. We got like fifteen minutes. I got a 30-minute sermon, and we're trying to cover five chapters. You know, I, I, I kind of set a deadline. I mean, we've been in the book of Acts pretty much since last September. And there's a couple of other things I, I'd like for us to do later in the summer before we get into the fall again. And so I kind of drew a line in the sand and said, we need to finish up the book of Acts by October, August the 4th, the first Sunday in August. Well, we still have seven chapters left. We've only gone through Acts chapter 21. So today I want to look at chapters 22 through 26 together. I know some of you are just kind of stepping into this with us, but we've been making a long journey through the book of Acts with a couple of interruptions, really trying to look at what faith is supposed to look like, what faith the way it should be, kind of stripping away 2,000 years of church tradition and all of our ideas and just see how the people who first encountered Christ, first encountered the gospel, lived it out in their lives. And so today, we're going to look at these chapters, and there's, there is a connection between them. There's, it's, a, it's a long journey for Paul. It, it lasts more than a couple of years, but, but in the most part, for the most part, these are settings in which Paul finds himself having to defend himself or defend his faith, whether it's before the crowd outside of the temple, whether it's before the Sanhedrin, whether it's before Roman leaders, whether it's before a Jewish king. He's having to defend himself. So there's a, a connection of him telling his story and, and recounting that over and over again. And so with that, we can kind of bundle this all together. But what I want to do is spend a few minutes and work through these chapters together. I'll read sections to you. I'll tell you parts of the narrative. And then when we get done, I'd like to draw some conclusions for us. And, and we need to keep in mind that the role of these passages in the book of Acts are several fold. First of all, Luke has an agenda inspired by God, writing, if you will, with the words of God. Part of his purpose is to demonstrate that the Roman authorities, that the Roman government doesn't have any reason to clamp down on or to see Christianity as being illegal or to be threatened. And so you're going to have several occasions in here where you're going to see the prominent Roman leaders... Say, I find nothing wrong with Paul. I find nothing wrong with Christianity. You're also going to see that it really sets up the occasion for the fulfillment of the structure of the book. The gospel moving from Jerusalem, moving to the uttermost parts of the earth as represented by the center of the world at that moment, the city of Rome. In the midst of it, you see God keeping his promise to Paul. That Paul would bear witness not only to the Gentiles, but he would also bear witness before, between kings, before kings and rulers. And all of that's going to happen in our section today. 
Now, when we last left Paul, he had inadvertently been the cause of a riot in the temple complex. Temple complex was huge. It was 1,500 feet long on one side, over 300 feet wide. Thousands of people went there every single day. Paul's there participating in a, in a Jewish rite that signified their dedication to God and, and, and their gratitude to God. And, and while he's in the temple, confirming the fact that he's a good law keeper, if you will, he's a follower, he's a Jew, he's a good Jew, these Jews who had seen him out in Ephesus, had seen him out in Derby, out in Lystra, whatever, that are currently in Jerusalem, they see Paul. And they remember what Paul was like out in those areas. And the fact that he left the synagogues and preached to the Gentiles. And, and they're angry at Paul. And so they accuse him inside of the temple of desecrating the temple by bringing Gentiles into places where they're not supposed to be. That would be all non-Jews. And Paul, indeed, was traveling with some, but none of them were with him in the temple. And this huge riot occurs in there. They drag Paul outside of the temple. They close down the temple doors. And they're literally ready to rip, rip him limb from limb. Not figuratively, but literally, they're ready to rip him limb from limb until the Roman commander, the guy who's in charge of the entire garrison in Jerusalem, maybe the equivalent of a, a full colonel or a, a one-star general, whatever, he leads troops down in and they rescue Paul. As they're climbing the stairs to go into the barracks where the troops stay, Paul says to him in Greek, I want to speak to the crowd. And and the commander's like, what? You're speaking to me in Greek? I I thought you were this guy who, this Hebrew guy who was trying to lead this revolution or whatever. How is it, you know, you come to speak Greek? He said, well, I grew up in Tarsus, which is a Greek-speaking city. He said, and I'd like to speak to the crowd. He says, Okay. So here Paul's on the top of these stairs. He's got this huge crowd that was just trying to kill him, laid out behind, below him. And he starts to speak to them in Hebrew. So all the Roman soldiers have no idea what's going on. Let's just read a few of those verses. I want to pick up with verse 1 of chapter 22. It says, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense before you. The only thing is that Paul's not going to offer a defense. doesn't say a single thing about whether he desecrated the temple or anything else. He's just going to tell his story. See, when they heard that he was addressing them in, Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, they became even quieter. And he, says, I, I, he says, I am a Jewish man. I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a, a prominent teacher of the law, of the, a religious teacher, and educated according to the strict view of our patriarchal law. Being zealous for God, just as all of you are today. He says, I persecuted this way. That's a reference to Christianity. I persecuted this way, this following after Christ, to the death, binding and putting both men and women in jail, and as as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. Having received letters from the brothers, I I was traveling to Damascus to bring those who were prisoners, uh, to bring those who were prisoners there to be punished in Jerusalem. And as I was traveling near Damascus, and that's a long journey, just as he's about there, he's in eyesight of the city, about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I, and I answered, said, who are you, Lord? He said, and he said to me, I'm Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Then, then I said, well, 
what should I do, Lord? You know, what, what do you want me to do? And the Lord told me, get up, go into Damascus, and there you'll be told about everything that is signed for you to do. Since I couldn't see because of the brightness of that light, I, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. And someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good reputation with all the Jews. In other words, this is a good Jewish guy. He was also a follower of Christ. He said, he came to me and he stood by me and he said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And in that very hour I looked up and I saw him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, that's a reference to Christ, and to hear the sound of his voice. For you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now why delay? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins by calling on his name. And, and after I came back to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple complex, I went into a visionary state and saw him, that's again a reference to Jesus, telling me, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. But, but I said, Lord, they know that in the synagogue, after synagogue, I had, been, I, had, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I, I, I myself was standing by and approving. And I guarded the clothes of those who killed him. So Paul's argument back to Jesus says, no, 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 I, I'm going to be a great witness. They know who I was. They knew what I was doing. Now I believe in you. That's got to have some credibility, right? He said, no, he says, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And if you continue to read through the text, the mention of the word Gentiles gets the Jewish crowd all stirred up again. And it becomes a huge commotion. And Paul, again, is having to be rescued, and he's dragged away by the Roman authorities. So, so you notice that Paul, who had an opportunity to stand before the crowd and say, I didn't bring any Gentiles into the temple. I didn't desecrate the temple. I was participating in a Jewish rite that many of you have done. I didn't do anything wrong. He had an opportunity to provide a defense. He doesn't do that. He tells his story about how God has worked in his life causes another uproar. The commander and his troops, they don't know what's going on, so he's, he's determined to get to the bottom of it, so he drags Paul into the back, and they say, we're going to beat the truth out of you. I'm using my language, but they chain him, and they get ready to scourge him, which is to whip him. And Paul looks over at the soldiers who were ready to do this, and he said, are you sure you really want to do this to a Roman citizen? Because it was illegal in the Roman world to chain or to scourge or to punish a Roman citizen who hadn't been convicted of a crime yet. And if you did so, you could pay with your life for doing so. So the soldiers get all upset. And they, one of them runs to the commander and he says, this guy's a Roman citizen. And there's some back and forth that's going on in there. And so between the Roman citizen and Paul and the, the, the commander saying, well, I bought my citizenship. And Paul said, well, I was born into it and et cetera. So the, the, the commander still needs to get to the bottom of it. So he decides the next day he's going to put Paul before the Sanhedrin. He's going to bring together all of the Jewish leaders, the Senate, if you will, of, of, of the nation of Israel. And he's going to present Paul before him and get to the bottom of why Paul why all this trouble is occurring. And that's what happens in chapter 23. Now, I'm not going to read all of this to you, okay? Because it's just too much. I'm hoping you'll go back and look at it later. But what occurs in here is that Paul gets into the midst of this struggle, and there's a little back and forth between him and the high priest. And eventually Paul makes this statement. In verse, um, verse 7, uh, sorry, in verse 6, 
When Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, two different types of Jewish believers, if you will, he, like Catholics and Baptists, if you will, he, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm being judged today because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirits, but the Pharisees, they affirm them all. So the shouting grew louder, and some of the scribes in the Pharisees' party got up, and, and they argued vehemently when we said, we find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? And when this dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them, and so he orders him to be taken out again. This is an incredible picture, to me at least, you know. Here, wouldn't it be great if you were watching C-SPAN, right? You know, and you're watching some Senate hearings or something. And the next thing you know, you know, that Senator Mitchell's climbing over the table to start swinging it, you know. I mean, that, that's really what's going on here. You know, they, they bring Paul in to get to the bottom of this, you know. And, 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 and Paul says, you know, I'm on trial today because I believe in the resurrection. And that splits the group right down the middle. And you could ask the question, well, maybe Paul is just using some divide-and-conquer type of tactics. And it could be. Paul's a smart guy. But the bottom line is, is that he really was on trial because of his belief in the resurrection. It was his belief in the resurrection of Christ. See, if Christ really has been raised from the grave, never to die again, and has ascended to be at the right hand of the Father, that's a game-changer. I mean, that changes everything about faith, about life, about our world, about eternity. It changes everything. And Paul knew it. He said, the reason I'm standing before you today is because God has changed the game through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now the poor commander, he doesn't know what to do. And so he's got Paul locked up. And the next thing you know, Paul's nephew comes calling, the the son of his sister. And he says, Paul, I've heard some stuff I got to tell you. He says these 40 guys here in town, in the city of Jerusalem, who have taken a vow that they're not going to eat or drink until they kill you. So what they've done is they've told the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, to ask for you to come back in to meet with them again tomorrow. And their plan is, is that while you're being brought in, they're going to attack the guards, that are, they're going to attack the caravan that you're in, and they're going to kill you. So Paul said, you know, he calls the guard and says, you've you got to take him. Take him to the commander. He's got something to tell him. So he goes and he meets with the, the, the nephew goes and meets with the commander, tells him the same thing. The commander says, he's not going to die on my watch. I'm not going to let a Roman citizen die on my watch. So in the middle of the night, he mobilizes a small army and he sends Paul off to Caesarea. Caesarea was the, the, pro, the capital of the Roman province of, of uh, Palestine. And so they, they travel out. 200 soldiers, 70 guys on horseback. They take Paul out in the middle of the night. You wonder what happened to those 40 guys. They had taken a vow before God not to eat or to drink. Now, I wonder if they just slowly perished or if they broke their vow or what. I, I don't know. But, but they get Paul to Caesarea, and he goes before a governor by the name of Felix. Now, you know, Rome's a big place, right? And they didn't have plane, you know, Roman Empire. They didn't have planes and all that stuff. So when you were the governor in the province, you were the law. 
you were the emperor in that area, you know. Now, you could get recalled, but Felix, he's in charge, okay. He's got the power of life and death over Paul. And this guy is, he's a remarkable and a shady character all at the same time. He was born a slave. But now he's a Roman governor. He's one of the, he's one of the most powerful men in the Roman Empire, and he was born a slave. And some of it has been because of the influence of his brother on the emperor Nero. Some of it is just by his own ability to maneuver and throw elbows and etc. And he's ahead. He actually, his wife, was, had been the, the wife of a king in the area. And he had seduced her away from the king and married her himself. This is, this is a, a shrewd, tough, insightful, capable guy. So he arrives there. And five days later, the, the entourage from Jerusalem of the Jewish leaders show up. And there's a little bit of a, a, of a trial that goes on before Felix. First of all, there's a, there's a Jew. This is in chapter 24. There's a Jewish leader, a Jewish lawyer who stands up and says, well, here are the problems we've got with, with Paul. First of all, he's an agitator. So they're, they're, they accuse him of being a disturber of the peace. Secondly, he follows a sect of the Nazarenes, which means he's a revolutionary. Rome didn't look kindly on revolutionaries. Lastly, he's desecrated the temple. And you know, if you want to have problems in Jerusalem, just desecrate the temple. So if this is the guy who's going to cause problems in Jerusalem, you probably want to eliminate him. So because of that, we think this guy shouldn't live anymore. So then Felix, the governor, not Felix the cat, Felix the governor, right? He turns to Paul and Paul makes this response in verse 10 of chapter 24. This is on page 950. The very bottom says, Because I know you've been a judge of this nation for many years, and Felix had been. I'm glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. You were able to determine that it's no more than 12 days since I went up to to worship in Jerusalem. I hadn't been there long enough to really cause any problems. I've only been there 12 days. You know, how much trouble can you create in 12 days? And they didn't find me disputing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd. So I just kept my head down. I didn't cause any trouble. I wasn't talking to anybody. I wasn't doing anything. And I wasn't doing this in the temple complex or in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. Neither can they provide evidence to you of what they now bring against me. But I confess this to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship my father's God, believing all the things that are written in the law and in the prophets. So Paul offers his defense. He says, but there's one thing I'm not going to back away from. I really do believe in Jesus. I don't care what's going to happen to me. I'm telling you, I really do believe in Jesus. And because of that, in verse 15, I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, that there's going to be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. And I always do my best to have a clear conscience towards God and man. And so then he goes on and he tells the rest of his story. I want you to pick up with me in verse 22 says, since Felix was accurately informed about the way, he adjourned the hearing saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I, I will decide your case. So he basically puts the whole thing off. Verse 23, he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, though he could have some freedom. And then it says in verse 24, and after some days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him on the subject of faith in Christ. Now as he spoke about righteousness... And he spoke about self-control, and he spoke about the judgment to come. Felix became afraid and replied, leave for now, but when I find time, I'll call for you. So Paul's getting a chance to share his faith one-on-one with Felix. 
the governor, the most powerful man on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean. He's getting to share his faith. And Paul doesn't back down. Felix gets recalled to Rome. He, he, he was a pretty ruthless guy. Had some shady methods. They finally caught up with him. They pulled his governorship. They sent a new guy by the name of Festus. Not Festus, the deputy sheriff from Gunsmoke, but Festus, the governor. All right? And so this guy, and Festus, as far as we know, was a good guy. And he rose up through the ranks because he was capable and he was a man of character. And he gets to Jerusalem. He gets to the area of Palestine. And Paul's been in prison for two years. Felix has made a decision in two years. Paul's just sitting there in Caesarea in jail. Festus shows up and he makes a trip up to Jerusalem to do the kind of introduce himself to the Jewish authorities. Then he comes back and he says, I need to make up my mind with this guy, Paul, that's left in prison. So the Jewish authorities come and they and and they start to, they have a trial, but in the midst of it, you know, they're not able to come to any resolution. He can't decide anything. Festus does not want to make the Jewish leaders angry. I mean, he's got to rule these people, right? And these people can cause trouble for them. They can be a pain in the neck. So he's trying to find a way to appease them. So he turns to Paul and he says, Paul, how about this? How about we take the trial from Caesarea and we move it up to Jerusalem? And we'll have your trial there. And you can face all of your accusers, the people who said they saw you in the temple, etc. Paul Paul knows that that's a death trap. So he executes what he has as a legal right as a Roman citizen. He said, listen, if I've done anything wrong, I'm willing to die for it. But I'm not going to let you set me up there to be assassinated. He said, I'm a Roman citizen. I have a right to appeal to the emperor, and I appeal my case to the emperor. And so he gets the ability, and so Festus consults with his lawyers, comes back and says, I can't deny you. I'm going to send you. So Paul's going to make his trip to Rome, and that's what's going to happen, start happening in chapter 27. Festus has got a problem, though. You know, it's kind of hard to send a prisoner along and say, well, I don't know what his charges is, but you need to determine what, if he's guilty or not. I mean, that's really the situation that Festus is in. So Festus is trying to figure out what to write to the emperor. And so when Agrippa, who's a king, comes, he invites Paul to speak to all of them. And it's, it's a huge pomp and circumstance kind of affair. And when it finally settles down, this is what happens. And this is in chapter 26. And our time's running short, so let me just really kind of fly, just get down to the bottom of it. And Paul recounts his story again to them. And, um, all, and he, he tells about his Damascus Road experience and the things he's been doing since then. And then pick up with verse 19 of chapter 20. Therefore, King Agrippa... I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and all the region of Judea to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do the works worthy of repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple complex and were trying to kill me. So I've, since I have obtained help that comes from God, to this day I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah should suffer that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. And at this point, Festus just exclaims in a loud voice, you're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. 
We can only think that the trigger in there was the fact that he proclaimed that Jesus had been risen from the dead. And and Festus just said, that sounds ridiculous. But Paul says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. You know, sometimes when we talk about Christ being the sole source of salvation for our world, people want to look at us and say, you're out of your mind. But actually, we're speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters. It's it's to him I am actually speaking boldly. For I'm not convinced that any of these things escapes his notice, since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa says to Paul, are are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? (laughs) And he says, I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, that not only you, but all listening to me today might become as I am, of course, without the chains. So the king, the governor, Bernice, and those who sitting with them got up, and when they had left, they talked with each other, and they said, this man has done nothing that deserved death or chains. And with that, the stage is set for Paul to take the gospel to the city of Rome. I think there's some truths that I want us to see from this experience of Paul telling a story over and over again. To kings, to Sanhedrins, to governors, to anybody who would listen. First of all, I want Paul's story in and of itself to remind us of this truth. That no matter where we are in life, no matter what we've done, no matter where we're going, whether we're trying to run away from God or whether we're trying to run to God, you're, not without, you're always within sight of God. God can, always, you, God can reach you exactly where you're at. Paul was on the Damascus road. He, he has traveled 98% of the way to Damascus. He can see it in the foreground. It is, if you will, the edge of the gospel for him. It, once he gets to Damascus, there's no more hope for him. And just as he's about ready to step into the place where there's no hope, Jesus meets him on the road. No matter where you are in your life journey, God can meet you. God wants to meet you right where you're at whether you're pursuing hard after him and you just can't seem to find him, or whether you're running away from God and spiritual things as fast as you can go, God can reach you, and God wants to reach you. Secondly, and I'm going very fast here, you know, you look at Paul, you look at his experience before the temple crowd, you look at his experience between King Agrippa, all the stuff that goes on in before, and the message that comes out is that The story of God's activity in our lives has great power to it. Just tell your spiritual story to other people. Just tell your spiritual story to other people. That's what Paul's doing. He has a chance to defend himself before the crowd outside the temple. He doesn't do that. He just says, this is what God's done in my life. Just tell your story. You know, and you see the pieces of it here. You you can talk about... He talks about what his life was like before he came to know Christ. What his life was like being a Pharisee, pursuing this, persecuting the church. He talks about how he came to meet Christ or to know his need for Christ, the Damascus Road experience. He talks about what he did after he met Christ. He did he repented and he was baptized and he called on Christ's name for forgiveness. And then he talks about his life after Christ. We could talk about those things in our lives. But many of us don't, and here's why. We're more concerned about our reputation than we are about God's reputation. Paul had a chance standing on those steps, overlooking the crowd in the temple, and he had a chance to defend his reputation. I didn't defile the temple. 
but he was more concerned about Christ's reputation. He said, this is what Christ has done to me. You know, some of us, we shy away from our stories because we don't think they're very exciting. You know, we, we, you know we, all the, in the news now, it's how big a flop the movie The Lone Ranger is, right? It just kind of poof, right down, right? You know, and how much money they're going to lose on it. Many of us feel like if we tell our story of how God's working in our lives, it's just going to go, it's just going to be a flop. The script won't even be get put into production. I got to tell you, God can use your story. My story for dramatics stinks. I was 11 years old when I came to know Christ. I mean, you can commit a lot of big sins when you're 11. I mean, you can, you can hit your sister more than you're supposed to. You know, you can lie about who did this or did that. You know, you can sneak a cookie after mom told you not to. You can do a lot of bad things when you're 11. But I came to give my life to Christ when I was 11. No Damascus Road experiences, none of that other kind of stuff. And yet that's my story. In some ways, that's probably more glorifying to God than what happened to Paul. You know, some of us are embarrassed of our story. I I was so proud last week when Hannah Roseberry stood up here, was able to tell about her journey, what faith is like for her. She struggles with self-esteem issues, with suicidal thoughts and with cutting and et cetera. Many of us are too afraid to tell our stories. We're embarrassed. We're concerned about our reputation, not the representation of Christ. Tell your story. God can use it. God wants to use it. I want you to see as well, there's tremendous credibility and authenticity. Paul is doing exactly what God's called him to do. He's bearing the gospel before kings and rulers and Gentiles. And there's a power in there that can't be denied. Enough power that Felix says, you know what, Paul, I want you to go away because I'm starting to feel convicted. There's tremendous power and credibility. And credibility and authenticity. One last truth. Never forget that everyone needs Christ. It's not just the soldiers that Paul is chained to or being dragged around. It's the kings that are walking in through the doors to the blowing trumpets and the royal robes. Everybody needs to know Christ. Everyone. Every one of us sitting here this morning and everybody that we know and come in contact with. Sometimes we think that there are people who just seem to be beyond that. Everyone needs to know Christ. Tell your story to them. Let's pray together. God, thanks for Paul. I'm sure glad I didn't have to walk in his sandals. But God, thank you for his faithfulness and the things that we can learn from him. You know, sometimes, Father, we, we think we have to get to a certain place before we can tell our story. But we can see from this picture of faith the way it's supposed to be. That it's just great credibility in being who you've called us to be and telling our story just exactly like it happened in our lives. God, we know that we all need you. Father, I, I admit afresh today that I need you that I needed Christ to die in my place. I can, Father, I renew my belief in Christ as the only means of being able to stand in his place before you. And I confess them, hopefully, clearly and faithfully every day. God, I pray that that is the experience of all of us here today. As we pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen.